Epigenetics Podcast Episode 12. The Interchromatin Network Model. Welcome to the 12th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. My name is Stefan and I am part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motive. Our special guest for this episode is Anna Pombo from the Max Delbruck Center in Berlin. Let's dive right into the interview. Thank you, Anna, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. You were born in Lisbon, Portugal and received your PhD from the University of Oxford in 1998. Then you moved on to the London Institute for Molecular, Molecular Medicine and to become head of your own group. You then moved to, to the Imperial College and became professor. And finally, since 2013, you are now a research group leader, leader and full professor at the Institute of Biology at the Humboldt University in Berlin. A question I like to ask every guest to start out of our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place? So why did you pursue a career in biology and science? Uh I, I, when I was a teenager, I had a number of different interests uh, in, in design, uh, in um, journalism, uh, but also in, in science. Uh, and I was really hooked up by uh, learning about photosynthesis and uh, really going into the molecular aspects of biology when I was uh, in, in high school. Uh, and This led then to uh, a deeper interest in biochemistry, and that's how I, I uh, you know, went into this area of research. But I was always very divided with other uh, aspects, and um, I think, yeah, what, what I really liked about it was detective work uh, and the design uh, in, in the biological sense and trying to understand how Uh, you know, complex organisms work. So, why did you move from the beautiful Portugal to the rainy UK and then to like Germany? <laughs> I mean, uh, was it the science that led you here, or was it like your personal interest to to move from Portugal away? Uh, I, you know, in, in those days, the science in Portugal was uh, still uh, developing. It, it then boomed up um, before the crisis in 2008, uh, and it, it was. Uh, an opportunity, right, to uh, have more chances in a, in a scientific career to, to move from Portugal uh, and experience science at the international level. Um, so it was, you know, an understanding that to have a career in science, it, it was important to move. Yeah, that's always uh, the case. So coming more to your science, um, long-range gene regulation worked through comet works through chromatin looping mechanisms and that bring together the promoters of genes with distant regulatory regions. It's all connected in the 3D space. And this is how the gene and the transcription machinery is brought together. And in 2006, you, pro you proposed the interchromatin net net network model of chromosome, chromosome organization. <laughs> Complicated word. Uh, could you quickly describe this model and the process that uh, lead or led to this model? So essentially, in in from the late 90s, uh, with the, with the advent of the fluorescence hybridization, uh, it had become possible to look at chromosome territories uh, in the nucleus of cells, 
And it was striking that they occupied discrete uh, areas. It was also very striking that their position was not fully random, but also not fully deterministic, suggesting that we had a mixture of physical uh, processes and biological influences in, in this position. And over the years, um, you know, one of, of aspects of the research at that time is that we mostly uh, did work with pairs of chromosomes or one chromosome and one locus. And as it, the fluorescence-sensitive hybridization uh, experiments became you know, more and more sophisticated, there were also many beautiful examples of parts of chromosomes uh, looping out from the territory to the other space, the remaining space of the nucleus. And, uh, uh, and, and these observations led the field to sort of move into a, a, a concept where chromosomes will really be away from each other and that somehow genes will come out of their own chromosome to meet uh, in some uh, interchromosomal space. However, you know, thinking about this from the biochemical angle, and so both um, myself and my co-author, Miguel Branco, were trained in biochemistry, this was sort of a bit difficult to understand. First of all, what would be the chemical properties that would keep a chromosome to itself, uh, since we have genes and heterochromatin in almost every chromosome. Uh, so we didn't understand how uh, it could work at the molecular level that the chromosome would recognize itself with maybe the exception of the uh, inactive X, which is coated with a, a particular molecule. Uh, and so it, it was also not clear what would keep this interchromosomal space uh, to be aware of itself, so it wouldn't allow contacts between chromosomes. And the field, if you look at the literature at the time, was becoming, you know, the images you may find in reviews and models in papers were becoming a bit exaggerated, where most of the nucleus was empty space to allow genes to meet, and the chromosomes were getting squeezed away from each other sort of conceptually, because we couldn't have at the same time genes looping out to meet somewhere, and also chromosomes occupying territories. And so we decided to um, look at this. So in, in the paper you referred, Branko and, and Pombo from 2006 in PLOS Biology. And so we, we decided to look at uh, uh, a number of uh, pairs of chromosomes, I think 23, 24, it's more or less 10% of all combinations in primary uh, human lymphocytes. And the, the, the choice of chromosome pairs had not been random, which shows them because from reading the literature on translocations, uh, it was already clear that uh, the translocations were not simply proportional to DNA, to the size or the DNA content of chromosomes, uh, but there seemed to be some, some patterns. And so I think it's, for example, uh, 9 and 11 and 9 and 22, chromosome 9 and 22, they have you know, similar sizes, but very different uh, ranges of, of translocation frequency in, in lymphocytes. And so we chose uh, essentially 10% of our combinations ranging across all ranges of translocation potential. And we decided in, in this uh, paper uh, from 2006 to look at how much chromosomes mix. And what we found was that they mixed uh, quite extensively uh, for each chromosome, was such a small uh, 
proportion of the nucleus contain this intermingling, an average across all cells, about 5%. But if you consider all combinations of all 200 and something pairs of chromosomes, this amounted to about 20% of the nucleus containing DNA between two, uh, you know, very close together between two different chromosomes. Uh, and, and so this then led us to, you know, state that there is extensive chromosome intermingling. Uh, there's a philosophical problem even with the concept because it's how do we define intermingling? What's the scale? At 10 nanometers, at 50 nanometers, at etc. So there was a very advanced, in my opinion, aspect of this paper more than 10 years ago where we did correlation microscopy. So we were not using standard 3D fish, but we had developed for this study uh, a technology which is closer to uh, the principles of electromicroscopy, where we use very thin cryosections from very well fixed materials. So this is cryofish. And so using cryofish, where you really only have about 150, 200 uh, nanometer thick slices, we could see that the DNA from two chromosomes was within this distance. And so it wasn't just a, an artifact uh, of some kind of optical aberration. Really, all our signal was within these uh, slices. But just to be completely sure, we went all the way to the correlative uh, fluorescence and electron microscopy, and we could then really see uh, signals marking two different chromosomes within the distance of a nucleosome. Of course, the amount of intermingling that one measures it depends on, on whatever threshold of distance you allow. So, this was sort of the first principle that we found extensive intermingling. The intermingling was not strictly proportional to the uh, volume or to the amount of DNA. Um, and uh, we also went on to do two very simple experiments. One was to ask, in these regions of uh, intermingling, do we have less DNA, as it would have been predicted by models of interchromatin space, or similar amounts of DNA? Uh, and, of course, if you just use the paint from the chromosomes, or the signal from the chromosomes you're labeling, you're going to be confused, because maybe there's less DNA of that chromosome, but there might be DNA of other chromosomes you're not measuring. And so to do this, we actually use just simply the DNA stain as a, a amount to measure concentration of DNA in the regions of intermingling between any two chromosomes. And the, it was startling to us to find out that there was as much DNA in these regions that anywhere else in the nucleus. And so if you have a picture of the nucleus and found a very less dense area, you could not predict that it did not have two chromosomes and vice versa. So DNA amount, DNA concentration across the nucleus did not predict that we were in a region of between two chromosomes. Uh, the second experiment was similar, but now looking at transcription. So we did the same experiment, but now asking at sites of transcription. Uh, and essentially it was the same uh, thing. So just because we are in, in between two chromosomes, uh, we could not see more transcription or, for that matter, less transcription. There was as much transcription there than everywhere else. And so this is sort of with all these ideas in mind, uh, and also with the increasing uh, results of, uh, you know, regions of different chromosomes coming together, 
We earned, in particular, I should mention, reading uh, an important paper by Nancy Kregner uh, in PNAS, which we cite in the paper with uh, uh, John Hutchinson, uh, The Mechanical Basis of Chromosome Function. We could essentially agree with, with uh, that all our data uh, agreed with the views they put forward that uh, chromosomes will mix as much as they can if, if there is space. Um, and uh, there will be, you know, pushback. There's a number of mechanical properties of this process. Uh, and essentially, but there's nothing particularly striking that should prevent chromosomes from mixing other than their inter-chromosomal contacts. Um, and so we tried to, at the end, make a, a very simple drawing. This is the drawing uh, that of a biochemist, not the drawing of a biologist, perhaps where essentially we tried to summarize the properties that we felt uh, were important. And so some, of course, the nuclear lamina, um, contacts within the chromosome will make a network that will, of course, uh, contain its chromosome, the chromosome on itself. It will favor uh, more and more interchromosome interactions. But if these are uh, lower or not so not so abundant, then uh, there's nothing necessarily preventing interchromosomal contacts, uh, whether they are then of biological relevance or not. This is not a very hot topic of research, with very nice examples in the offertory receptor locus. Um, and so it was really a mixture between, you know, we came up with this uh, model, really trying to uh, give some, some par new parameters that also the field could go and search for. Uh, is this, then, is this then when you teamed up with Mario Nicodemi and came up with the strings and binders model? Is this the one uh, you're referring to now? Yes. Or is this, uh, was this before that? No, no. So actually it was later. So I think I met with Mario uh, Nicodemi only in 2008. And I understand that, uh, if I'm correct, both him and other physicists were inspired by our diagram. And, uh, and essentially, yeah, essentially our little diagram with, with the network of contacts is immediately amenable for treatment, uh, quantitative treatment, because you then, of course, look for what are the points of contact, what are the features that promote the contacts, and how does, it, how does the system work if you change uh, concentration of proteins or if you change binding, binding sites. So it's sort of the model brought, uh, you know, this, the, the, the kind of research we were doing um, by describing and painting different chromosomes, etc., a number of beautiful examples, into, you know, with the aim of us, all of us, starting to think about it in quantitative manner with the rules of thermodynamics and uh, biochemical uh, mechanisms. What also comes into this is then the, the roles of TT, CTCF and coazine, right? How do you see their roles in chromatin folding and in this uh, space? So more recently, maybe I, I should go back to your question about the strings and binder switch model. This is actually a model that uh, Mario Nicodemi developed, I think, also before meeting me. There, there are uh, earlier uh, papers where he didn't use the, that particular name, but uh, the ingredients for the model were already published. And essentially, we, we have used this uh, model in a more recent paper in 2017 
to look at the folding of the oxphil locus. This is Barbieri et al. And here we use the uh, we use the strings and binder switch model to hypothesize different uh, mechanisms of folding for the oxphil, uh, and we considered uh, promoter states where the genes are active or polycombrepressed. Uh, or also the CTCF binding sites across the locus uh, or other, other features. Uh, and essentially, we found that at the scale of one megabase, uh, we could explain the folding of the locus by considering the promoter sites, uh, whereas the CTCF alone was not sufficient to understand folding at that scale. Um, so, we you know, there's an increasing literature on the roles of CTCF in policing, and this is uh, um, clear that many loci, uh, th those roles are essential, and uh, they contain regulatory activity between topological domains in some cases. But certainly from the work we did with Mario, uh, there's other rules uh, that may also occur both at local scales, but potentially at larger scales of chromatin folding. And this is really the area where we focus most of our work at the, at the longer range scale of uh, gene regulation, which is, as we see it, less explored by many of our colleagues. Well, the method you're mostly focusing on, as I got from, the, from your papers, is cryosectioning in different uh, flavors. Um, can you just uh, describe a little bit what what this method is all about and how you came up with it, or why this is so suitable for, for doing. Yes, so, so we I, I got sort of uh, hooked <laughs> uh, into using the Tokoyazu cryosectioning method when at the beginning of my PhD, uh, and uh, essentially the difficulty we had at the time, you know, for focal microscopy, it just became sort of of popular use. And the deconvolution techniques were uh, very preliminary, and they all required that you threshold your signal before you even started counting features. So uh, I came across the Tokoyazo technique when I was in Oxford, uh, and uh, um, essentially this allowed me to collect fluorescent signals from nuclei without assumptions about where the fluorochromes came from, because the thickness the slice is so thin that all the signal I was collecting was from within that volume uh, of the nucleus, and so we could then uh, much more robustly, with, or at least with less assumptions, uh, do quantitative, quantitative measurements from fluorescence microscopy. So the limitations of the method would then be the thickness of the slice if, uh, in terms of resolution? Uh, exactly, yes. So we convert the resolution of, of, you know, of our fluorescent images no longer to the 600, 700 of traditional confocal, uh, but into the whichever thickness we chose, which could be 100 nanometers or 200, etc. Uh, and, and so the, the other beauty of the Tokoyazu cryosectioning is that it was uh, developed uh, by, by Tokoyazo in, in the late 60s. It was then adopted by many colleagues doing uh, cryo um, um, electron microscopy, in particular Gareth Griffiths and others. And they had shown that uh, and developed uh, fixation conditions which uh, preserved the structure of the nucleus as well as more uh, 
based on formaldehyde, uh, uh, essentially to the same level as the traditional fixative glutaraldehyde, and they also show that this technique was ideal to preserve very sensitive small organelles such as vesicles or membrane layers in viruses. And they also did a comparison with cryo-EM without fixation, showing that essentially the, the pres the, these vesicles in particular were uh, preserved with the type of technique. So I thought, you know, as, as, some, as a biochemist who was diverging into imaging, uh, that uh, um, this was quite a robust uh, approach to use, where I would start with material that was as fixed and as preserved, I, I should say, as preserved as it could be at the time, in the late, early 90s, uh, and which was quite amenable to do a number of, take of things. So it was incredibly easy to uh, do confocal microscopy because the samples are prepared. You will come in the morning, you get your slices, you don't need to do cell culture. Or uh, in the case of animals, you know, also uh, a, a good approach to save on animal experimentation. Uh, and uh, this, this was just, just really suited my uh, uh, original biochemist soul. And the other advantage, and this we uh, showcase also in, in the Branko and Pombo paper about chromosome intermingling, was that it was also immediately suitable for correlative microscopy, which uh, you know only I think ten years ago have really come to into you know being much more fashionable approach. And so we could look at the same structures on the fluorescent microscope, on the electron microscope, and really be in control of whether we're looking just some kind of fuzzy distribution or a clustered object uh, that allowed us to 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 do. Now, having said that, when I started with cryosections, I never thought I would still be using them now. Uh, I imagine that uh, microscopy would have developed faster, uh, and uh, and it has developed uh, incredibly fast. Uh, I also uh, later understood that perhaps the limitation is not so much the microscopy, but the tagging of molecules in vivo. This becomes a huge, um, uh, difficult challenge. And so for, you know, surprisingly enough, I should say, we are still uh, using the cryosectioning technique as a, um, a fantastic way to get really quantitative measurements of 3D genome architecture. How does this compare to HiC and all those methods, all those genomic methods? Do you, did you compare those? Uh, how is that comparing? So, so. Yeah, so since then, maybe this I should introduce first that we, um, one of the reasons we continued to use the uh, Tokoyazo cryosections was to uh, develop a, a genome-wide approach to map chromatin contacts. We call this genome architecture mapping, or GAM. Uh, and uh, uh, essentially, this is, we start with the same material, but instead of adding probes and fluorocombs to see where the genome is, we uh, essentially extract the DNA and uh, do special statistics to then infer uh, all sorts of uh, chromatin contacts, compaction, radio position, uh, and using a very small number of cells. Uh, we can say that of the contacts we discover with GAM uh, genomoid, we can then go back to um, imaging and validate them by fish. 
Uh, the comparisons with the high C and other techniques are ongoing. Uh, in our published paper, Big Re et al. in 2017, we showed that the topological domains can be seen. This was an important result because up to that point, uh, topological domains have not been seen other than with the ligation-dependent methods. And we have now applied the technology in very specific cell types in, in tissue, and we also see the topological domains uh, more broadly uh, in, in these other systems. Uh, the, the, uh, there's a comparisons going on. We, we um, will actually have a, a review that, that is, is currently um, uh, being considered in, 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 a, in a journal. Uh, and I think the results that stems not only from GAM, but also from uh, other ligation-free technologies, in particular Sprite, developed by Mitch Goodman, uh, <clears throat> is that with ligation-free technologies, we can capture um, a much larger proportion of long-range contacts that uh, span uh, not only the traditional 1 to 2 megabases that are more robustly captured in high sea uh, but also much uh, longer range contacts. Uh, it, it's fair to say, important to say, that uh, contacts across chromosomes have also been seen by other technologies, for example, by 4C-SEC uh, in the lab of Autodelat. Uh, but the, when, when those are validated or, or, or tested by FISH, uh, the percentage of the frequency of those contacts in the population of cells is extremely low, uh, about 10 to 15 percent, whereas the contacts that we are now discovering with GAM, uh, we can, when we validate them by FISH, they correspond to very abundant contacts in the range of 20 to 75 percent. What do you think uh, is the reason for that? Is it more sensitive or is it just that you capture those more in comparison to the other ones because you use less cells? No, no, I, I don't think it's nothing to do with using less cells. So there's one, uh, one aspect that I think we're not yet discussing in our field, uh, which is uh, how cells are prepared, right, before we even try to map the contacts. And I think this, to me, goes back to um, um, the importance of preserving structure before you measure whatever you want to measure, right? And so with the GAM and the cryofish, uh, you know, all these technologies that start from the tokayazo samples, uh, we, we are at the level of ultrastructural preservation uh, that is traditional of ultrastructural studies uh, by electron microscopy. When we make chromatin to the chip or to the C technologies, whether we cross-link or we don't, we are, of course, gaining access to chromatin. The same with fish, you know, when we do fish, we need to not fix very strongly. It's stronger than high C, but it's not as strong as in the topoiazo approach uh, that we and Gareth Griffith, that we use and Gareth Griffiths develop. And so we need to get access to what we want to measure. And one possibility that we are actually looking at at the moment is whether this first step may bias the types of contacts that each method can detect. Uh, it doesn't mean that the ones that are detected are wrong, it just means in some technologies we might be 
more robustly detecting some types of contacts that resist our preparation of chromatin, whereas in other methods you might actually see those local contacts less well because you now have a whole range of contacts that span distances. So, in my view, I think there will be a nice uh, um, ecosystem where these different technologies are going to be used to different applications. Uh, and at the moment, I think we just really need to learn uh, how 3D genome regulation, at the levels at which regulation works, and then apply each method wisely for the problems in hand. So I guess that was a really nice uh, sentence to finish off our little interview. <laughs> I guess you were aiming for that. Uh, we didn't even touch your other work on Polycomb and RNA Pol2, but I guess uh, the sentence sums it up very, very good. And thank you very much, Anna, for your time. And uh, it was nice speaking to you. You too. Thank you very much. This was the 12th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at eurotech at activemotif.com. You can download the podcast also via iTunes. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, motivations at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.